This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. On part two of Leaders in Product Security, Rohit Sethi, CEO of Security Compass, is joined by Brad Arkin, Senior Vice President, Chief Security and Trust Officer at Cisco. Brad Arkin leads Cisco's security and trust organization, whose core mission is to ensure Cisco meets its security and privacy obligations to their customers, regulators, employees, and other stakeholders. Prior to joining Cisco, Arkin was Chief Security Officer at Adobe and has held management positions at AtStake and Sigital. Arkin holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science and Mathematics from the College of William and Mary, a Master's of Science in Computer Science from George Washington University, and a Master of Business Administration from Columbia University and London Business School. All right. Well, thank you, Brad, for joining us. Uh, Maybe just to get started, tell us a bit about your career. How did you get into the world of information and product security? Yeah, so it's fun to be here. Thanks for having me. But it all started, actually, I guess a long time ago now. I was studying uh, math and computer science in undergrad, and I really got into uh, cryptography after picking up Bruce Schneier's Applied Cryptography. It was sitting on a bookshelf at a place I was interning the summer after my freshman year. And it was just perfect because I was really more of a mathematician at heart, and I was doing the computer science degree because I figured it helped me get a job. But now I could do both, do the math and the computer science. And so when I graduated, I took a job at Sigital uh, because originally I was going to do like math research on crypto topics. And and that was like a place to go do that. And one thing led to another and John Viega and Gary McGraw and I founded the software security group at Sigital, which eventually kind of took over the company. And so the focus of Sigital eventually became helping people that are building code do a better job of thinking about security as they're building that code. And so I went from Sigital and I worked for AtStake. AtStake got acquired by Symantec. And I was at a startup for a little while. And then I went to Adobe. And I was there for about 12 years. And in the beginning, I was focused on helping the desktop product engineering teams think about security as, as they were building their code. And then as Adobe went through its business transition, my focus shifted towards hosted services and my scope expanded. So I had responsibility for back office classic InfoSec, CISO kind of work as well. Um, So I've been doing this literally since I was 19. It's been my big focus the whole time. And it's just amazing how much things have changed over that course. Well, I mean, that's a good segue. You were in software during a period of real major transformation in security. What was it like and what lessons would you share with the audience? Yeah, so one, one of the things which, looking back, it's almost hard to remember how unimportant security was way back when. And so in the 1999, 2003 timeframe, really very few people cared about security because it wasn't going to lose you business if you had bad security. And it wasn't going to, it seemed like a waste of resources. If you're an engineering leader and you could invest in security or you could do something else that customers are actually asking for. And back when I joined Adobe in 2008, the big focus was trying to establish the priority of the work that we needed to do against the competing priorities of all the other demands on engineering leaders, resource allocation decisions. And these days, uh, when I meet with senior leaders anywhere at the company I work for today for Cisco or um, anywhere else, everybody says, what I need to do to be secure, how can I invest resources in a way that's going to actually move the ball and make me and the people that rely on my software safer over time. 
And so that one thing of, in a lot of ways, kind of the fight has been won because leadership really understands how important security is. And now the hard decision is now what, what to do about it? How do you act on the desire to do better? Because I think there's a lot of activities which naively might seem useful, but they're not actually productive and making the code more secure. And so figuring out, given the motivation we want to do better for security, how do you actually achieve that? And the specifics there are something that I think still requires a lot of you know, nuance and hand-wringing uh, as teams work together to figure out the right next steps. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, I would argue that there are still large sectors of the economy that still think cybersecurity is not that important, or at least not. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it, it's, there's leading companies that have it figured out, and there's lagging companies that, that still have to go through that transformation. Way, way back when, 10, 15 years ago, I think it was very rare company that, that cared much at all about security. Um, whereas these days, everybody's got a CISO, everyone's got uh, folks who have at least a job title that they're responsible for security. And then the arguments are now what to do about it. How do we actually invest to make, to move the needle and make things better? Yeah. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. How, how has your role evolved at Cisco? I just joined in March. So I've been here almost a year now and the team I inherited we're making lots of changes as, as we get sharper for the challenges ahead. But I'd say the broad strokes are being responsible for everything we do for customers. And so that's the code we build, the physical devices we assemble and create through our supply chain and ship out to customers. There's the software that we host and operate as a service that our customers will come visit us. And then also we have lots of shrink wrap stuff that we ship out to customers and they'll deploy and operate in their own environments. And so all the security work around the Cisco security development lifecycle, the operational work we do to keep tabs on what our hosted services look like from a posture perspective and you know monitoring and response if there's something that needs intervention. Um, and then also the design work. So and that includes both the hardware, so our trusted boot story, and, and how do you buy Cisco equipment that has been untampered with? All of these things are folks, efforts that are coordinated by folks within my team, centrally across all the different corners of the company. And then I've also got the classic back office security work. And so I have a CISO on my team um, who partners with IT to make sure they're doing all the things they need to do. And I've got a chief privacy officer on my team. And so he's focused on not just the policy compliance work, but also privacy by design and thinking about how we integrate privacy into what we're building, not just the security work. Um, and I think those are the broad strokes. So we do a lot of partnering with the engineering teams and the IT teams. And my joke is always like, those are the folks that are doing the real work. And then we partner with them to sort of complain and tell them what to do for security. The reality is it's very much a partnership as we jointly define what that security roadmap needs to look like. That's really interesting. I think you talked, you touched upon a few things that are sort of the theme of this podcast series. The first being that like what you first talked about was really in broad buckets, integrating security into the, the products that Cisco ships uh, and hosts. So you know, from your perspective, you've had both product and enterprise security report to you. What, what are the overlaps and what's different? Yeah. So I think culturally, there's a pretty big difference from your classic engineering team and your classic IT team and the motivations, the value, the way they assess 
different aspects of the problem are just pretty different. So culturally, you have to be bilingual, I think, in order to interact uh, with product engineering teams as well as IT teams. Um, now, the truth is, though, if you have an IT team that's managing a hosted service that Cisco employees use, the servers that we need to maintain the security posture for, that task isn't really any different than when you have a customer-facing offering, you know, something like WebEx or Duo. And so at the end of the day, a server is a server, and you can have a server with high security assurance, with good hygiene, good operational practices around it, and you can have environments that have low operational hygiene and poor practices. And in the work that we need to do to improve the security assurance we get from those environments, technically, is usually going to be pretty similar. Those are going to be the same. The way that we go about it and the way that the teams schedule their work, the way that they think about what their deliverables are, how they measure success, those are culturally pretty different sometimes between one engineering team and one IT team. Um, the other thing that I think jumps out as sort of a unique skill set within the IT world is when you're building a hosted service in a consumer environment, you have very little control over the way that the outside world will interact with your service. And so, you know, the hygiene of their device, uh, the way they make choices around like password complexity and things like that. But when we're talking about Cisco employees, we have quite a bit of flexibility to impose through policies and other rules the way that they interact with the services we operate. And so the levers we have available to drive better security outcomes, it's not just a question of hardening the server side, but we can also look at the endpoint story and what are we doing there? And so are the endpoints well managed? Are they well patched? You know, you might have an opinion about which operating system is more secure. And, and all of those choices are things that you can actually impose on the user base in a IT environment, um, which you have no flexibility to when you're talking about your customers. And, and so I think figuring out, like, if you have that capability, what's the best way to leverage it? And is it worth it putting a lot of energy into creating these written policies? Or should you focus more on just the server-side config and the way the applications are hosted and operated? Um, so that, that's one of the things to me that feels different from the two domains. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You know, one thing I'll just offer my observation for companies that aren't quite as sophisticated as Cisco, what we'll often see is that the product org, to the extent that they are getting customer pressure to integrate security in, there's a little bit more of a, I guess you say business imperative to, mm -hmm. to uh, take security as a first class citizen. Whereas like in internal IT, in a lot of companies, not across the board, of course, but in a lot of companies, there's a lot of focus on the perimeter. Um, you know, you have sort of a lot of the uh, top priorities around phishing, malware, these sorts of things. And so baking security into say the, the software that you use in, in, in the infrastructure of the company and on the enterprise side um, tends, it just tends to be a harder argument for uh, CISOs to make versus people who are, who are in product security. Again, not across the board, but it's certainly something we've, we've seen uh, in many companies. Yeah, for me, and I'm a big proponent of the zero trust architecture. Yeah. And so that's, that's something you know, I, I joined the company and the next day I said, where are we on zero trust? Let's get that rolled out. And so I, I joined in March and we rolled it out in November, which has been great. And so moving away from that old school perimeter model and moving towards the idea that you've got services 
Some of them might be third-party operated, like Office 365 or Workday or something like that. And then you've got um, on-prem services, but from the end user perspective, the typical Cisco employee, we've sassified our uh, on-prem hosted services. So, you know, corporate directory and you know, corporate inter internet and things like that. And so now when you're working from home, if you get the email with a link in it, you just click it and it opens, it works. And it doesn't matter if you're on VPN or not. Um, and so moving away from the idea that like being inside the perimeter, suddenly sprinkles magic, security assurance, pixie dust on the device. You know, the truth is like you're at risk either way, because if you're using an endpoint that does email web browsing, there's a lot of vectors to attack that device. Yep. And so to me, keeping it out at arm's length and being able to do the posture checks and the other hygiene checks that a zero trust architecture allows us to do is a step up in security assurance. Um, that's sort of my forward looking view of where I want to go on the IT security side of things. And then that's on the endpoint. And then what we're left with on the server side is the same way we operate our production environment that we're hosting our um, customer facing services on. Like any of those good ideas that make sense in the IT environment, we should just apply them. A server is a server. We need to secure it either way. Right. Yeah, that sounds like it's utopian for a lot of people to get to that. So it's good to hear you're executing on that. I'm hopeful that people can use this as inspiration when they hear it. Um, so maybe just moving a little bit into product security specifically. Now, from your perspective, why is it important for us as an industry to raise awareness of product security? Well, I think it's... A situation where the end customer, the people that are making the purchase decision that they want to use this software in whatever form it comes in, you know, shipped on a physical device or operated as a service or shrink wrap, they deploy themselves. They have security expectations for the experience of relying on that software, but they're not always communicated explicitly. They just expect it to be secure. And the things they'll spend their time talking about are it needs to be performant, it needs to have these features, like I want it to work on this platform. And so the customer usually doesn't realize that their security expectations have not been met until something bad happens. And then that can, can be a catastrophic impact on the relationship if you've had something bad happen. And there's that mismatch where they said, oh, I thought you guys were on top of this, but now I'm disappointed and they feel trapped. You know, it, it can be hard to make a switch when you're in that mood. And so helping the people that are building code that customers are going to rely on, understand these implicit security expectations, and then how to best address them so that we can be there uh, and do the best we can. And then if there is a problem, we can communicate, here's what we did, here's what went wrong, here's what we've learned from it, we're going to do better next time. And you see this a lot with services when there's an outage. And, and I think this no holds barred, honest postmortem about what went wrong, what are we doing different next time, what have we learned from it? And if you can take that same mentality on the security side, that's going to lead to better uh, overall experience for the customer. Because not everything is always going to be perfect, but if you can prove you're working at it, you've got a plan, and then when things do go wrong, you learn from that and integrate that to do better next time. And so anybody building code, they need to know these security expectations are there, even if they're not explicit, and then figure out how to best do about it. That's been so fun for me, you know, the past 25 years in the industry to watch how it's gone from this really niche topic to something that I think a lot of people are practicing as a much more routine part of business. Yeah, 100% agree. So maybe just to, to 
talk about that expectation of consumers. What, what do you think, like what role will certifications and industry standards play in the future of product security? Yeah, and th this one, I think we're nowhere near the end finish line of, of where we need to go as an industry because you've got all these buyers who want a certain level of security assurance. And we have very clumsy language today about how do they express exactly what they want. And so a lot of times we've settled into, depending what region in the world you're in, you know, in the US, it might be, you wanna see a SOC 2 report, third-party attestation that a particular service complies with SOC 2 controls um, before you'll buy it. And so then all of the service providers can go get SOC 2s. Um, the trouble is you can have team A that gets a SOC 2 and they're really on it. They're doing great work. Their controls make sense. The way they've implemented makes sense. They got a really straightforward, you know, straight shooting third-party attestation where these folks really did a good audit. And then you can see another team where they've got sloppy controls, poor implementation. They got their third-party audit by Joe's Crab Shack and audit services. And it doesn't really hold the same weight but at the end of the day, for the buyer, if they're not sophisticated, one sock two to the other, it's hard to tell like which one is gold plated and which one is really tarnished. And so we need, and so then what happens is a lot of these buyers, in addition to asking to see the sock two, then they'll also send along their questionnaire. And I've got a bunch of people that spend all day responding to these 1500 row security questionnaires that come in an Excel spreadsheet. And you've got to go through and answer these same questions for all these different buyers, even though we've got a SOC 2, we've got ISO 27001, we've got all these other certifications. And there's a desire to reach that level of trust that I, the buyer, am communicating what I expect of my vendor. And the vendor can say, we hear you, we comply with your desired requirements, we have the right controls in place, here they are. And, and then everyone's happy. And I think that our control frameworks today don't get us there. And so the end result is you ask for compliance with the third-party attestation and the controls that are in place, but then you also have buyers inflicting their own questionnaires on top. And it's incredibly inefficient. And you end up with security teams that become more security Q&A pre-sales engineers, as opposed to actually doing real security work for the actual code base. And, and so that's counterproductive for what the customers ultimately want. And the way they're expressing themselves through more and more Q&A is, is ultimately counterproductive for their end goals. And so as an industry, we've got to figure out how can we do the right sequence of dance steps that will demonstrate we're on it, we get it, we're serious, have confidence, and do so in a way that has a minimal burden of paperwork and, and allows us to focus most of our resources on the actual engineering improvements, because that's what's going to make people you know, feel more comfortable. So I, th I think as an industry, we're going to see a lot more certifications and you'll have international certifications like ISO and SOC 2. You'll have things that might be country-based like C5 in Germany and ISMAP and FedRAMP and IRAP. There's, there's a zillion of these things that are coming out. And I don't think that it's going to be any end to that anytime soon, but we're, we need to get to as an industry as a way to be more clear about what are we doing in a way that communicates uh, confidence and people can understand the security assurance levels that they're buying into. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I've heard anyone frame it that way, but I think you've just changed my perspective a little bit, or at least thinking about the problem, which is you have so much work, so many 
uh, person hours of security experts focused on pre-sales Q&A as opposed yeah. to doing the, the execution. And we have this massive talent gap at the same time. So it, it seems like we could do a lot better just as an industry overall by refocusing the work of the people who are already experts. It's yeah, and we're all working from home right now, but if we were in the office, I could basically go down the hallway and I'd have a room full of people answering security questionnaires from our buyers. Right. And that's super important. We got to be there for our customers. If they have questions, we've got to answer them. Yeah. But then on the opposite side of the hallway, I have a different room full of my vendor risk management team that's inflicting questionnaires <laughs> on my vendors. Yeah. And, you know, and all of these people were just shuffling paperwork and it's like moving business. It's addressing like business risk. So it's not wasted. We're doing it for a reason, yeah. but it just doesn't feel like, like when you think about not just my hallway, but like every company out there, they've got similar rooms of people answering and asking security questions all day long. And, you know, there's just, it feels like there's gotta be some efficiencies here somehow as an industry. And I think that's the work ahead for us collectively is how can we do a better job of communicating that we're serious as a product engineering team about security and then help people feel good about it. Yeah, a hundred percent agree. Well, I think that's interesting food for thought. So I'm going to touch on something you mentioned towards the start about the time with the product teams and uh, essentially having them take ownership. So, so how have you helped product management and engineering lines of business take ownership of security of their products? Yeah, I've, I've spent so much time thinking about this. And, and basically since, I don't know, 1999, that's really the core task in front of me, like in each job I've had ever since then. And the way it settled out for me is that you have to have a central voice of security, some type of security leader um, that is essentially anointed as and people have all these jokes, you know, one throat to choke or something like that. And so you have to have a central security team, but that is not sufficient. You also have to have embedded security capabilities within the engineering teams that are actually built in the product for the customer. Um, if you have only one or only the other, I think it cannot succeed. But when you have both and the embedded security folks, you can call them security champions or security tiger team or whatever the right name is for that team culture. But the central security team and the security champion embedded within the engineering team, they have to mutually own the security roadmap of activities that is going to uh, best address the identified security relevant technical debt that exists within that code base. And so the whole motion of product security in my mind, it's a question of how do you go through the discovery phase and learn about what is the relevant security technical debt within a code base? And then once identified, how do you prioritize and stack rank the different items of improvement that you can invest in that would address the technical debt at a pace commensurate with the risk it represents for the business. And so you could have ticky-tack problems that would fall towards the bottom. You could have low-hanging fruit where it's a big win and easy to do. Let's go do it right now. And then you've got things which might be moderate or high investment and it's going to be worth it, but maybe not right away. And so there's a lot of things where you might work with a team and you say, okay, we all agree that this thing needs to get improved but it's a lot of work. We got to get the next release out to our customers. We got to fix these other things. We've got some performance problems. And so you might not schedule that big investment for security for this particular item until 
several sprints from now. So maybe we're going to get it done by the end of the year, but not by the end of the month. And for other topics, it might be, oh my God, we just discovered this, drop what you're doing and run and fix it. And nobody goes home until it's fixed and pushed to production. And so you've got to figure out like the urgent, the important, uh, and things that are like nice to have, so what they can wait till tomorrow. And, and then once you have that joint roadmap, then everyone has to sign off on it. We need to make sure it's resourced appropriately because if the security champion embedded in the team's like, oh yeah, this is great work. We should totally do this. And then the engineering VP says, we're busy. We're not going to do it. Then that's a disconnect. And that's where the role of the central security team comes into play. Because if the CEO knew that everyone knew there was work to do and they just weren't doing the security investment to make things better, um, that's a big problem. That's a disconnect because the CEO wouldn't be happy sitting idly by while these opportunities to improve are not happening. And so having the right readout and reporting structures. So you give a monthly report to the CEO and his directs or her directs. You give an update to the board when they meet regularly, maybe quarterly. These are the out of band communication channels that can help bring resources to bear when teams get stuck. And the very worst thing that can happen is when you have a security failure, something's gone wrong, everyone is sad. And then you go talk to the low-level engineers who understood the environment best. And they say, yeah, I was waiting for that to happen. It was obvious it's gonna happen. And you're like, oh man, like if you knew in advance, why didn't we fix it? And they go, oh, we tried it and get funded. And that's such a disappointment when something like that happens. And so the role of the central security team is to make sure that we give voice to those insights to make sure that when it's a no-brainer that this thing needs to get fixed, that we go fix it. It's got to happen. Um, and so working together with the embedded security expertise who understand the environment best, partnering with the central security team that can act as an out-of-band escalation point, but also an area of centralized expertise because if you have a low maturity engineering team that hasn't been doing security for very long, the central security team can give them a lot of education and coach them up and help them move through that maturity cycle faster. Uh, but eventually, as you climb the maturity curve, the embedded security folks will be just as savvy as the central security team. And then it becomes a real partnership. We're together, they're saying, how can we make this better? Is this problem prioritized appropriately? Should we go fix this with more urgency? And, and those become the real discussions, which to me are most fun. And, and I get to hear the thorniest problems that they can't resolve on their own. You know, those get bubbled up to me. And, and that's like my happiest meeting of the week is when I get to hear about these like honest technical decisions as opposed to like my budget meetings and like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, so some, something really interesting you said there, I just want to touch upon a little more is you, you mentioned reporting up to the CEO and giving them that, that the visibility into whether or not people are making and honoring their commitments. Does, does this work without that CEO support? Um, it might, you know, everywhere I've worked, I've, I've had that CEO connection. And so to me, that's a lever I, I pull when I need to. Um, I could imagine a company where maybe it's not the CEO, it's a COO or the general counsel or the CFO. Like each company is different in terms of kind of where the power brokers are and like where decisions really get made. Right. Um, I think the key thing for success there is the central security leader needs to have a communication path towards the ultimate level of escalation within the organization. Yeah. And so if you've got an engineering VP who just doesn't want to eat their vegetables and they don't want to do their security work, you've got to be able to reach 
the decision maker, CEO, CFO, GC, it might be different at different companies. Right. And then what happens is you have a real grown up conversation about, I'm worried about these risks. They can be remediated with this investment. Here's the trade-offs because we invest in security. It means that feature won't make it to customers in the cycle. We might slip the release date. You know, there's everything comes with a price. And then when you sit down together and if they say, we hear you, we're not going to do it now for these reasons, then you can integrate that and say, okay, I'm better understanding where is our risk acceptance level for this organization. Mm -hmm. And then if it comes back to bite you later from a CYA perspective, you've got the meeting notes that like you're in the meeting, you talked it through and they voted you down, you know? Right. And then if it doesn't come back to bite you say, oh, maybe I was being a little bit too ivory tower. As a security leader, maybe I was pushing for too much. And the truth is like, we're here to solve customer problems and we're a for-profit, you know, going concern. And if we were to just sit with our back to the customer and do security work all day and not worry about customer problems or the other things that customers want to buy, then that's not really the point of why we're all here together. So you've got to strike the right balance of security and everything else we're doing. The other thing I think is really important is in addition to having your direct comms channel to management in whatever form that is, you know, CEO or whatever. Um, I think it's really important to have a connection to the board of directors. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is that the board of directors is the boss of management. And it's, it's not a situation anyone wants to ever be in, but if you think management is making bad decisions for security, you've got to have that out of band escalation channel to basically go over the head of your ultimate boss, the CEO, and say, like, I'm worried about this. This feels like a real risk. Now, you can't just do this every single meeting because they're just going to invite somebody else because, you know, the whole point of your job is to sort this out, like, with your peers and your, you know, leadership within the company. But the idea that on occasion you can communicate with the board and say, these are the risks we're facing. Here's what we're doing about it. We could spend more, but then we'd have less to do these other things. This feels like we're at the right trade-off or... Maybe you don't feel that way. And you can say, I'm really worried about this. Here's the reasons why. Here are the trade-offs that would be involved. And I can't solve this on my own. And then, again, you take the feedback as you talk it through with the board of directors to understand um, what advice do they have? How do they have ideas on how we can go fix it? And the other thing is it's just a wonderful forcing function because you would never go to the board without coordinating first with your leadership. Right. And so to talk with leadership and say, hey, I'm really worried about this. I want to include it in my next board deck. They're going to take that very seriously. And you might end up with a different answer if you didn't have that board channel. And, and so to me, those are the two things. Now, in terms of reporting structure, who your actual boss is, CTO, CIO, CFO, general counsel, COO, I, I think you can be successful in many different places in the org chart. But I think it's very important that somehow you have that communication vehicle both to senior leadership in whatever form that is, and to the board of directors. So I think that's a good segue. The whole relationship with senior leadership and the board of directors sounds like two really important things. What else would you say? What, what advice would you give somebody who is just standing up a product security function at their company? Uh, so first off, congratulations. It's not fun necessarily to be the first, yeah. but I think it's an absolutely vital step. And so if I'm talking to the CEO of a company, and they say, hey, I read that latest article, I've got religion, I want to do better for security, where do I start? You know, being honest here, we're, we're not as mature as we need to be, what should I do first? And the very first thing I would tell somebody in that situation is, anoint somebody and put them in charge. 
make sure they clearly understand and everyone else understands. We have a security leader now. This is who it is. I want them to get your time and attention because their job is to help us figure this out. And even if they're not coming from a security background, they're maybe just an engineering leader who's been drafted into being the security leader. Um, having somebody anointed as being in charge and nothing focuses the mind, like knowing like your name is next to it. And, and so if you've been assigned the task, that's wonderful. The next step is to start building out the communication channels so that when you discover something that needs to be addressed, you can get an audience with the right people. So do the engineering VPs know who you are? Does senior leadership know who you are? Do you have the ability to interact with them at regular intervals? Does the board know who you are? Can you talk to them? And once you have those comms channels in place, now you got to feed the comms channels with the information they need to hear. How are we doing? How do we measure up? What should we be doing more of? And there's a lot of different ways that you can get that first assessment. And so you have lots of consulting companies will take your money and, and give an opinion as to how well you're doing and what you should focus on. And so if you've got a relationship with one of these guys, that can be a good first start. Um, you have things like BSIM that give you not just benchmarking of where you are, but helps you understand within your industry and within the overall tech peer group as a whole, how do you stack up? And that's very powerful when you can say, I think as a company, we should be this tall, but today we are not there. We're much lower. So we have a lot of work to do. And then you can back out of that. What is the plan you have to execute on in order to get from here to there? And so having a plan, having the communication channels so that you can escalate and get visibility when you need to on problems where you're stuck. Um, I think those are the two big pieces. And then if somebody hasn't been anointed yet, that's the first step. So put someone in charge, make sure they have the right plan and then track how well they're executing on it. And then make sure they've got the visibility. So if they get stuck, they're going to get help. That's, that's really good advice. I, I completely agree with all of that. Uh, last question for me here. We, we alluded to it a little bit before, but there's a general problem with a talent shortage in cybersecurity. And then if we think about product security as being this, this other area that is maybe a little bit more aligned with engineering, um, the problem may be even worse. From your perspective, I know you've spent time thinking about this. How should we tackle the, the, the skills gap in product security? Yeah, and there are some people who come across as quite panicked when they talk about this. I, I think it's a much more tractable problem than some people paint it to be because there are people who have spent their whole lives studying you know, how to write the perfect C++ piece of code from a security perspective or like any browser-based SaaS offering and or API security, like you can find an expert who just knows that topic inside and out. The truth is you can go from not good enough to pretty okay with somebody with very minimal dedicated security expertise. Um, so just a generic, competent, technical voice. And it could be a security architect, it could be an engineering manager. For people from all walks of this technical background, I think it'd be impactful as a voice for security. But saying to somebody, congratulations, you're security now, let's get to work. And they're like, well, I don't know security. Well, you read a few things, talk to some people and watch some YouTube videos, go to a conference or two. And I think you can become very impactful very quickly. And the truth is the basics around what does hygiene look like in an operational environment? What are some easy gotchas that you need to go address? It's very easy to come up with a work list of good ideas to go fix. And then as you start to sharpen and prioritize that list, then you can start to understand, well, 
we thought this was a big deal, but as we dig into it, we're actually, we're smarter now. And we realize we've discovered a bunch of new things that we should work on first. And the process that you go through, I've, I've seen people go from a no security background, pure, you know, just regular code writer engineer, and, and they become some of the best experts I've ever worked with over the course of like 18, 24 months. Um, and obviously they're going to get better and better the more time they spend on it. Um, but, but you can be really useful within a few months. Um, and the truth is a lot of code bases would benefit from somebody who's willing to just focus on the basics and you don't need the style points of the really fancy stuff. And so for somebody who feels like, oh, I don't have a master's degree in computer security, I'm not qualified to do this, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, anybody technical, I think, can roll their sleeves up and get to work and do a lot of really good work. And, and then what happens is you learn so much by doing and then seeking out your peers and, and talking to people from other companies. How do you tackle this? How have you, how have you solved this type of problem? Um, for me, I think as an industry, so many people have learned so much about security over the past, you know, five years, 10 years, whatever time frame you want. And that we just keep turning the crank. And the biggest thing is you just have to make it clear, have someone been assigned to this? Do they own the topic? And then what do they need help with? And, and if you give those ingredients, I think good technical people can, can train themselves up and become really impactful, um, even without a fancy grad degree or something. Well, I'll say it's good to hear some optimism on that front. <laughs> I, yeah, I, no, I tend to agree. I'm, I'm usually the, the most cynical guy in the room, but on this topic, I guess I'm a little more. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I think everybody needs to hear it. Well, listen, Brad, I, I, that, that's the end of um, the questions I have, but I wanted to give you a chance. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to, to add for our listeners? Oh, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I think, you know, for, for some folks, the message, you're not alone, you know, seek out your friends. There's, there's people elsewhere trying to tackle the same problems. Very few challenges that any of us are confronting. Very rarely is it the first time anyone on earth has tried to solve this problem. And so seeking out your friends and people you can learn from, because chances are someone's already overcome this before. And so figured out how did they do it? What can you adapt from that experience to apply in your own environment? It's all tractable. You just gotta get cracking, get, get working on it. And, uh, and know it's a noble effort. So keep fighting the good fight. Sounds good, Brad. Well, I, I hope that uh, a lot of people take away some really good pointers from your experience and the things you've talked about here. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, this time. has been a blast. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brad. Want to learn about what Security Compass has to offer? Check out securitycompass.com slash demo for a free demo today. Want more of the Balancing Act? Be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to podcasts for more episodes.